are listening to Claim Closure, the premier audio resource for workers' compensation claims in North Carolina. Welcome back in, everyone, to another episode of Claim Closure. I am your host, Brian Grozier, partner at Midkiff Monsignor Ross, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. And we are getting back to uh, what makes a compensable claim. So we've already talked about injury by accident. We've already talked about arising out of, but we have yet to talk about course and scope of the employment. And if you recall, there are three elements that a claimant must prove in a North Carolina workers' compensation case in order for there to be a compensable case. And that is that it has to be an injury by accident arising out of and within the course and scope of the employment. We've already covered the first two elements in fairly great detail, but we haven't addressed the third, which is the course and scope. And so that'll be the focus of the next few episodes of this podcast. And today we're going to do a bit of an oversight as to what course and scope actually means. And so in the course of refers to the time, place, and circumstances under which the injury actually occurs. And it's broken down into three elements there, the time, the place, and the circumstance. And so we're going to break down all three. And really, the the seminal case that deals with course and scope is Harless versus Flynn. And it's a Court of Appeals case a 1968 case, actually the two co- the, the, it was a suit between co-workers and the negligent co-worker that injured the claimant was trying to assert workers' compensation in that case and say that it was uh, the suit should be barred because workers' compensation should control and have jurisdiction over the case and not be sued in uh, civil court. And uh, the court did an analysis of uh, what it means to arise out of, it was part of the analysis, but more importantly as to today's episode, what does it mean to be in the course of, in course and scope of the employment? And ultimately deemed that it was a uh, workers' comp case and and referred it over to the uh, Industrial Commission at that time. So that is the case. We're going to talk about that case a little bit um, later on in this particular episode, but I'm going to refer to Harless several times in terms of what it actually means to be in the course and scope of the employment. And so I wanted to kind of alert you to that. So let's first talk about the time. And this, again, this comes from Harless in terms of a description of what it means to be um, in the time under which that injury occurs. And so the time begins... Uh, a reasonable time before the actual work begins and continues for a reasonable time after the work ends, including intervals during the workday for rest and refreshment. We'll talk about that. It's called a personal comfort doctrine. We'll talk about that in a little bit. What it's saying here is it doesn't have to be, and I get this sometimes from adjusters when they send me a claim or they ask me about the compensability of a claim and they first say, well, he wasn't clocked in yet or he had already clocked out, you know, and he got injured after he was clocked out or he hadn't been clocked in yet. He was on his way to clock in. And we'll talk about the the next episode, the next podcast episode, we'll go into in depth about what the coming and going rule is and the exceptions to that rule. 
but this is more talking about, you know, that instance, maybe they're already on the premises. And we'll talk about the premises exception as well when we're talking about the coming and going rule in the next episode. This is kind of talking about they haven't officially kind of started their job yet. They're on the premises or they're leaving the job and, and they're done with the workday. They've already clocked out. That's what that's talking about. So it doesn't have to necessarily be once they clocked in or once they clocked out in order for them to be in the course and scope. It can be a reasonable time before work actually begins and it can continue for a reasonable time after it ends, including those intervals involving the personal comfort doctrine, which we'll talk about here in a minute. What about place? Place includes, but is not limited to the premises of the employer. Now, time and place do not have to mean during regular hours or on the employer's premises. If the employee is doing work at the direction and for the benefit of the employer, time and place is satisfied even if the work is done off-premises and after regular working hours. That's according to Brown versus Jim Brown's service station, a 1980 Court of Appeals case. And it's basically mirroring what Harless was talking about um, 12 years prior in 1968. So, again, time doesn't have to be clocking in or clocking out, and place doesn't have to necessarily be uh, on the premises of the employer so long as the work is done at the direction and for the benefit of the employer, and that can be the uh, direct or indirect Benefit. Harless talks about that as well when we're talking about the circumstances um, of an injury taking place. And so what Harless says about that, threefold. We'll talk about the first one. The employee is engaged in an activity which he is authorized to undertake and is calculated to further, directly or indirectly, the employer's business. So it doesn't have to be something that fits the job description, Right. It can be an indirect benefit. I always use uh, this as an example. Uh, let's say that you as an adjuster are having a team meeting and your supervisor requests you to go to Dunkin' Donuts to go pick up donuts for the meeting. Well, I'm willing to bet Dunkin' Donuts a, and a run to Dunkin' Donuts is not part of your job description or have anything to do with your actual job. But it indirectly benefits your job because you're being directed by your supervisor to go pick up those donuts at the indirect benefit of, of those that are going to be at uh, the meeting so that they have something to eat. Uh, or maybe it's to draw folks to the meeting in the first place. Hey, we've got donuts. Come you know, to the room and, and we'll talk about whatever the topic is. Uh, and that's what it's talking about there, uh, both the direct and indirect benefit to the employer's business. The fact that the employee is not engaged in the actual performance of the duties of his job does not preclude recovery. All right. So that's what I mean. If like you were being asked to go pick up those donuts, again, those aren't duties of you're not actually performing the duties of your job when you're going to do that, but you're doing it at the direction of your supervisor. And it is indirectly, or you could even argue directly, benefiting the employer's business by providing refreshments to the coworkers that are going to be there at that particular meeting. And then finally, injury sustained while the employee is doing what a man so employed or woman, you know, it's just the way the 1968 case 
was read. Uh, Injury sustained while the employee is doing what a man so employed may reasonably do within a time which he is employed and at a place where he may reasonably be during that time to do that thing is going to be considered a compensable consequence or circumstance. So again, it's a reasonable person standard, right? We'll just read it that way. The injury sustained while the employee is doing what a reasonable person so employed may be reasonably doing within the time which that person is employed and at a place where that person may reasonably be during the time to do that thing. So it's a reasonable person standard that they're looking at in terms of, you know, what exactly was going on. So one of the the cases that, and I encourage you, if if you want a very um, thorough discussion of all of this, read the Harless case, you know, and see if you can just look it up. Harless versus Flynn. It's a 1968 Court of Appeals case because it really breaks down the analysis of course and scope really well. And it talks about, you know, some of the situations as whether or not this was in the course and scope and how it intermingles with arising out of and we talked about arising out of inherent risk to the employment and everything else and uh, it does a decent job of really distinguishing between the two and but also showing how they're interwoven with each other at times as well i had mentioned personal comfort so one of the things uh, you know in this particular case the the harless case i might as well mention it now uh before we get into the personal comfort doctrine so this was a case, it was at this plant just south of Lexington. If you've ever been to North Carolina and gone on barbecue tours, um, inevitably you have gone to Lexington, uh, which is kind of in between Charlotte and, and Greensboro, Winston-Salem, there if you're taking 85. And, uh, and Lexington is known for its uh, barbecue. It's a Western-style barbecue. Um, so it's different than what I have out here in Raleigh uh, with the uh, vinegar base. It's more of a tobano base over there. I definitely prefer the uh, vinegar base over here. Sorry for all you Charlotte folks and Asheville folks that listen to this, but vinegar is definitely better. Um, nevertheless, this is where the plant was located. It was just south of Lexington. And what they had was this designated parking area. It was in a fenced-in area, so they had this fence that's that sequestered the plant from the main road and inside that fence there was a parking area right next to the plant where the folks would come down the stairs and then go out to their cars and there'd be rows of cars with a uh you know little path between the parked cars to head out to the gate to leave the premises to go home or go to lunch or what have you and and these workers would start at seven and work till 12 and then they'd get an hour break and they weren't paid for that break but they were required to take a lunch break they weren't paid for it but they would sometimes eat on the premises and sometimes eat off premises they were allowed to do both and so on this particular day both of these co-workers went down to their respective cars to go and eat off the premises. And as they were doing so, one car hit the other and caused injury to the claimant. They hadn't left the gate yet or anything in that regard. Uh, So it still had happened on the premises of the employer. And that was in a nutshell what, what the incident was and how all this analysis occurred in the first place. But one of the things that they talked about in terms of the personal comfort doctrine was the fact that it was kind of immaterial that the claimant was 
paid or unpaid during these lunch breaks. Uh, it was material to some level that it occurred on the premises, although there are cases out there that talk about, you know, when they are going off the premises and it could still be a compensable case, um, depending on the facts. But here it had occurred on the premises. It was admittedly during a lunch break, which was required by the employer, but the employees were not paid for it. So they weren't on the clock at the time, but it was still ultimately deemed to be something that was within the course and scope of the employment. And so what is this personal comfort doctrine? I've referenced it several times and it was applied here in this particular case, the Harless case. What does it actually mean? And, and Harless talks about it. It says, intending to his personal physical needs, an employee is indirectly benefiting his employer. Course of employment continues when an employee goes to the bathroom, takes a smoke break, takes a refreshment break, goes on a personal errand temporarily, or leaves his post to go assist a co-worker performing their job. And so it just kind of gave an idea as to what the personal comfort doctrine is in that regard. And it doesn't just have to be uh, going to the bathroom or you know grabbing a, uh, a bite to eat. It also talks about smoke breaks. It talks about running a temporary personal errand. And it even talks about uh, leaving your post to help a coworker perform jobs. So let's talk about this, explore that just a little bit further in terms of, you know, where does that apply in, in, in some cases that other than Harless, uh, where might that apply? And so when I mentioned unpaid breaks, uh, there's a case that specifically addresses that that's called Mints versus Verizon Wireless. It's a 2012 Court of Appeals case. And in this particular case, the employee slipped while walking from the bathroom to the cubicle after an unpaid lunch break. And the employer requires the employees to take this lunch break. So the employee was off the clock, had just been on a lunch break, was walking from the bathroom to the cubicle when this accident takes place. Again, immaterial that it was an unpaid lunch break, immaterial that he wasn't performing his, his job at the time, it was still within the course and scope because of what I've been talking about here with the personal comfort doctrine, the indirect benefit to the employer. It's still on the premises in terms of an area. And we'll talk about premises exceptions uh, at the next episode, like I mentioned, but it doesn't have to necessarily be something that the employer owns. You're talking more about also maintaining or controlling uh, or having dominion over in some fashion, not necessarily owning it. Uh, but we'll talk about that more in a little bit But uh, uh, next week. But this was a compensable case. And again, I, I get these questions all the time. Well, this person was not clocked in or it was an unpaid lunch. Are you immaterial when it comes to this stuff? All right. What about, here's an odd one. What about an employee living on the premises uh, of the place? When does the course and scope actually end for an employee that's actually living on the premises? This happened in Watkins versus City of Wilmington in 1976, uh, case out of the Court of Appeals. And in that case, the employee was quiet, required to live on the premises. And so the court said that if an employee is required to live on the premises, either by contract of employment or by nature of employment, and is continuously on call, 
whether or not on actual duty, the entire period of his presence on the premises pursuant to that requirement is covered. You would probably see this, and it's not surprising that it's a city of Wilmington case. You'd probably see this with a lot of city employees, right? Whether they be firemen or police officers or other service members that maybe have a 24-hour, 48-hour, 72-hour shift or whatever it may be. And they are literally living at the office because they are on call for the weekend or for that part of the week or whatever it may be. And they don't go home. You know, they're constantly on call and they're at the premises. It doesn't mean that they're working the whole time. They might be playing a video game. They might be, you know, doing crossword puzzles or, you know, watching TV, whatever it may be. Um, but they're there. They're forced to be there. Uh, and this would account for that. I have had this type of case before that has come up. Uh, which is a little bit of a twist as to what Watkins was talking about. And I'm going to seriously butcher this poor gentleman's name. I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce it. It is J-A-U-R-E-G-U-I. So good luck with that. Um, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce that, but it is that claimant versus Carolina Vegetables. It's a 1993 Court of Appeals case. This is a little bit of a twist in terms of living on the premises like Watkins was. This is a migrant farm worker, uh, which is a, a common claimant here in North Carolina. Uh, there are a lot of migrant workers on farms, and I've had these cases come up in the past, and this type of thing uh, happened where the migrant farm worker is living in company housing. And in this particular case, he was injured while showering after work. Now, he, unlike in Watkins, he wasn't on call, but he was required to live on the premises because of the fact that he wasn't on call and his work shift had already ended. Uh, yes, he was required to live there, but he wasn't doing anything to the benefit of the employer at the time because he wasn't on call and he wasn't expected to you know, work at a moment's notice or anything like that it wasn't deemed as a compensable case. So a little bit different. I think the on-call nature uh, is the key distinction between those two cases, uh, but a little bit different, a little bit different. So I mentioned this briefly when I was talking about Harless and talking about this uh, comfort doctrine and saying that, you know, being on the premises uh, helped make that case compensable, but that there could be instances where they're not on the premises for lunch and they get injured and it's still compensable. And that stems from a 1998 Court of Appeals case, Shaw versus Smith and Jennings. And I wanted to just read straight from it uh, so that you have an idea as to what types of cases may be compensable here in North Carolina if the injury happens off-site, but the comfort doctrine is being applied. The personal comfort doctrine is being applied. So when can those cases be compensable? And what this case does is it cites Larson's, which I've mentioned before, is kind of like the go-to in terms of all things workers' compensation, not just in North Carolina, but throughout the United States and various adopt or the various states adopt portions, if not all, of what Larson's uh, says uh, in terms of workers' compensation, but. That's why so many states are similar in some fashion when it comes to workers' comp, but not completely similar or completely the same, at least, because we pick and choose kind of what parts of Larson's we take and what we don't or what we modify, et cetera, et cetera. So this uses Larson's and it also uses some case law actually out of uh, Colorado. 
to formulate the opinion that they did in this particular case. So let me just read straight from it. Again, this is Shaw versus Smith and Jennings, Inc. And we're talking about an injury that takes place off premises while on lunch or something uh, along the lines of that personal comfort doctrine. So in addition, it goes on to say, in addition to employees being compensated for injuries suffered during their lunch breaks, coffee breaks, or rest breaks have increasingly become such a fixture in many kinds of employment. And injuries occurring off the premises during these breaks have also been held to be compensable. The operative principle in determining whether to allow compensation in these cases is whether the employer, in all the circumstances, is deemed to have retained authority over the employee. If an employer has found has been found to have retained such authority, then the courts have tended to allow compensation. In making this determination, there are several factors to consider. One, the duration of the break period. Two, whether the employee is paid during the break period. Three, whether the employer provides a place for employees to take breaks, including vending facilities. Four, whether the employer permits off-premises breaks or has acquiesced in such despite policies against such breaks. And five, the proximity of the off-premises location where the employee was injured to the employment site. So it goes on, it's, it's citing this case called Roach versus Industrial Commission, State of Colorado, and it says, in Roach, the Colorado Court of Appeals reversed the Industrial Commission's denial of benefits to the plaintiff, emphasizing the following determinative factors. Since there were no vending facilities on the premises, the employees were expressly permitted to travel off the premises to purchase refreshments. Employees were paid during the lunch break period. The break period was of a short duration and the convenience store where plaintiff traveled was in close proximity to the place of employment. And the purpose of the employee's business or visit was for the basic purpose of rest and refreshment. So it went on to say that likewise, in this case, the decedent Smith was on a paid morning break and had traveled a short distance from the job site. When the accident occurred, there were no facilities for food or drink on the premises, and the employer acquiesced in allowing its employees to go off the job site for the purpose of obtaining refreshments. Therefore, we conclude the commission properly determined the decedent's fatal accident occurred in the course of his employment with the defendant. And so those are the factors. I'm going to reiterate those again for you one more time, just so that you're familiar with it. These are the factors that we look at when you're talking about an off-site injury while they're doing some sort of refreshment break where they're getting food, they're getting drinks, they're getting whatever that would fall under that personal comfort doctrine. Again, number one, the duration of the break period. Number two, whether the employee is paid during the break period. Number three, whether the employer provides a place for the employees to take breaks, including vending facilities. Number four, whether the employer permits off-premises breaks or has acquiesced in such despite policies against such breaks. And five, the proximity of the off-premises location where the employee was injured to the employment site. Those are the five factors the court is going to look at in that type of a case. And again, it's going to depend on your facts. And obviously, the more that you have uh, that are saying that it's a short break, a shorter break, or a short break, uh, if the employee was paid versus unpaid, the employer did not provide a place uh, to take a break and didn't have any vending facilities or a fridge or anything like that for people to keep their food in. Uh, you know, all these things are going to be considered, but the more that you have 
you may be in favor of the employee in terms of the analysis of it, the more likely it is that it's going to be a compensable case. Okay. So depend on your facts and uh, that's where you're going to get your um, determination from is that particular case. So it's nice to have these two cases, Shaw versus Smith for Jennings and, and Harless to kind of give you an idea as to how course and scope applies. And, and this is talking a little bit, the Smith, Shaw is talking a little bit about um, premises. I told you I'm going to talk about the premises exception and talk about what it means to be on the premises and whether an injury actually takes place on the premises and how that ties in with the coming and going rule. What does it actually mean to be at work? And when do you actually get to work? And when are you actually leaving work? Because most of us, all most of us have to travel to and from work and we're typically not covered while we're traveling to or from work there are exceptions i'll talk about those exceptions and i'll talk about the coming and going rule and the premises exception but that'll all be in the next episode until then this has been claim closure